By the end of the 1970s, video games had arrived. They were in bars and pubs with Pong in 1972, and then in the arcades with games like Space Invaders and Pac-Man. But in the 80s, people found another way to play. With the new computers and consoles, we brought video games into our homes, and games became more personal and private. Video games had come home. How can I save Earth? Well, son, I beat you again. I'll get you next time. Play thousands of games on your family TV. Hello, I'm Dan Golding, and this is the second episode of A Short History of Video Games. The history of games is also the history of gamers. What people did with games is as fascinating as what designers intended them to do with games. The power that let people do things that we never imagined that they would do, the fact that you could pick up a, a dead troll and use it as a weapon to beat Gandalf about the head and shoulders, it, it's something that it would never occur to anybody to program that, well, it would never have occurred to me to program that into a game. I think that was really powerful. So much changed when games arrived in the home. For a start, you didn't need to put 20 cents in the slot every time you wanted to play. In the noisy, flashy world of the arcades, games were about instant gratification. But in the comfort of your own home, games needed to be different, quieter and longer to keep your attention for days, weeks, even months. It was like the difference between a pop single and a concept album. With early consoles and computers, video games became a lot more personal. So what else changed when video games went from the arcade to the home in the 1980s? For a start, dorky jingles. Hey, Australia, you watch your favourite game. I've got invaders in my sights. Stand up, take it in. Some you win and some you lose. Move on over, Dad, I want to play Atari 2. Going from the arcade to the home wasn't painless. In fact, the game's era almost ended as thousands of copies of the Atari game, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, were dumped in landfill in 1983, but more on that later. Even in the early days, the quality of home video games was a big problem. Well, the first thing to remember is that different games entered the home than were available in the arcade. But there was a system really of disappointment that you would have when you brought them home. You were comparing them naturally to the arcade and experiencing different but somehow less at home. Christian McRae is a lecturer and researcher of games design, history and culture at RMIT University. And so how games players, and especially young people, imagined games at home is that they would be arcade perfect. And that was an, something that we as children would hold very, very dear when something was close to an arcade experience. It was incredibly valuable. But also what changed is that the public performance aspect of games changed into a family performance and having enough time in front of the TV, because it's obviously in the 80s and 90s far less common to have more than one TV at home. So it becomes about who controls the television. Of all the games machines in the 80s, the Atari 2600 most clearly symbolises the shift from the public arcades to the private home. Atari made their name with competitive, attention-grabbing arcade machines in the 70s, 
In contrast, though, the 2600 was a games console. This was a box that plugged into your TV and played games through plastic cartridges. It was about family more than anything. Look at that! Now here come the asteroids and missile command! Here's an Australian ad for the 2600 starring a young Frankie J. Holden as a starship pilot and father. How can I save Earth? Well, son, I'll beat you again. I'll get you next time. Play thousands of Games as a genuine family hobby actually is an idea that doesn't really resurface until three decades later, in 2006, with the Nintendo Wii. But for Atari, at the beginning of the 80s, family was how games entered the home. The Atari 2600 was sold as like a homewares object, and its packaging said family computing. And it looked like something which could plausibly belong to any member of the family. Dads could touch it. Mums could touch it. It was plausible, even though it was clearly a games machine. The other thing to remember is that it's coming out in an era where a lot of people still have black and white TVs. So it would say on the back, works on both black and white and colour. And this is actually, it's hard to remember that you didn't throw out your TV every five years, all those things. And the Atari 2600 sort of, gave you a really good excuse to own a TV that it was in colour. And it's hard to imagine that there was a relationship there, but that's, it was still very very much a question of do we get a new TV to have colour, especially in countries that hadn't had such a saturation, so to speak, of colour TVs. The 2600 put Atari at the centre of games culture, but this was short-lived. How do I jump? Okay, there we go. I'm playing Pitfall for the Atari 2600 from 1982. It's a game that looks sort of like an Indiana Jones thing. Uh, I'm currently controlling a little guy, um, Pitfall Harry, I think his name is, uh, as he runs around a jungle and avoids snakes, swings on vines over crocodiles. That sort of thing. And from the sound effects, uh, you can probably hear I'm not doing too well. But I've really wanted to play Pitfall for a long time uh, because it's really important for games history. Because although this game was for the Atari 2600, it actually wasn't made by Atari but by a company called Activision. Not only that, it was also known as David Crane's Pitfall, like... Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather or or something like that, where the artist is credited right up front and centre. David Crane actually began making games for uh, Atari, but left with three other programmers to create this company called Activision in 1979. Here he is. At the time, because of a corporate culture that wasn't really started at Atari, but when Atari sold to Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers is a big corporation, and they came in... And they thought of games as, you know, it's a company product. It's no different than a microwave oven. Um, And so the fact that this person worked on it or that person worked on it made no difference. But it turned out that through sales figures, you could point out and say, wait a minute, this person must be really good at this because their game sold 50 times as much as the next person's. So when we did leave Atari, largely because of a lack of recognition, We just made it a point at Activision to recognize the designer of a video game as you would an author of a book. It's very important in game design history to think about the splintering of these companies multiple times over the years. 
and giving creators credit for like a very imp- for that important two year period afterwards, you could definitely see. In retrospect, certainly, you could see an attitude about how ideas emerged in the games, and they really pushed different aesthetics. And that that what that meant was unusual science fiction, unusual fantasy, and Atari were looking for sports basic activities first. But as soon as one company did something, the other would have to react with something that was quite kind of unusual in the same space. So they would often end up with competing games quite quickly. They're very, very interesting, though, in that as soon as Activision splinter, people realise they can splinter from Activision as well, and so it's sort of this familial breakdown. You know, once Martin Luther pins his uh, message on the front of the church, then of course everyone realises that they can do the same thing, and so there's a huge amount of changes that occur because of that relationship split. The biggest change of all was a simple one: too many games and too many bad games. Conventional wisdom is that. In the UK, US, and and the US international distribution networks, a glut of games crashed the value of games sales for big distributors. So they would go to a shop, they would just have crap on the shelf for a dollar, and consumers no longer understood. These games were often terrible. Atari's ET: The Extraterrestrial, a tie-in of the Spielberg film, was made in just six weeks, and it was incredibly bad. Buggy, boring, unplayable. Atari actually ended up burying thousands of unsold copies of the game in landfill in New Mexico. There was a documentary made in 2014 called Atari Game Over that dug them up again. Under that landfill is a burial site of an entire industry. Growing up, you always read little rumors about it. The dreams of a generation buried underneath the garbage. You can hear it screaming or something. I don't know. These games that were always unplayable are now being sold on eBay for hundreds of dollars. They're collectors' items because although Atari had been the fastest-growing company in American history after the burial, it went bankrupt. This was the games industry crash of 1983. What also happens at the same time is that those big distributors in the United States simply got tired of the low margins. On those consoles, and started to cut the shelf space. And they were looking at other toys like bikes that were getting more and more popular, skateboards that were getting more and more popular, and they just simply made a calculation. So there's a few other forces in there which we just forget about because games are a packaged good, and we simply think, oh well, games are like an art form. It's like, well, they take up a lot of shelf space as well, and for a company that's building on shelf space, it's incredibly important. But what it came to is people realizing that even a dollar is not worth it if you're never going to play the game. And I think post eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven, and when Nintendo came out, they realized that Mario would be something you could play for years, and that was of huge benefit to Nintendo's design philosophy. Nintendo was a Japanese playing card manufacturer, and they'd had some success in the arcades already with a game called Donkey Kong. This was the first big hit for Shigeru Miyamoto, a banjo-playing, shaggy-haired graphic designer straight out of uni. Miyamoto once dreamt of becoming a puppeteer or a cartoonist. He was asked to make a game based on the Popeye comic strip, but Nintendo couldn't get the rights. So instead, Miyamoto took inspiration from King Kong and Beauty and the Beast, and he created the now iconic Save the Princess from the Giant Ape game, Donkey Kong. 
Nintendo ended up naming the hero of the game after the guy who owned the warehouse they rented in Seattle. His name was Mario. Nintendo's games into the mid-1980s were magical. With games like Super Mario Brothers and The Legend of Zelda, Nintendo offered players worlds to explore and places to live in. A garden on a microchip, as Miyamoto once put it. These games are now icons. Even today, I still use the first level of Super Mario Brothers from 1985 to introduce game analysis to my uni students. This is something well beyond the instant thrill of the arcade. Nintendo's approach also came from necessity. Only a single pixel of detail could be added to Mario's face, so they gave him a moustache. Only a few different sounds could be made by Nintendo's technology, so their music was unusual in other ways. Waltzes, ragtime, calypso. Christian McRae. They proposed worlds and stories and experiences that were equal to cartoons in the imagination of children and young adults. They proposed new sounds, new aesthetics, and new concepts, which could easily be understood, but could hardly be compared. And they were also a way to translate things, uh, sort of forms of media which were familiar but not popular. You could have pre-sort of 1950s, 1960s anime that was not working on television anymore in Japan, but could be translated into semi-familiar shapes in Nintendo characters like Ice Climbers. And they would refer to things, but not refer to them. So there was a lot of reuse, really, of culture and a reuse of familiar faces, familiar shapes. These games represented replayable experiences which were different to arcade ones. So they were really one of the first times you could really get that satisfying translation from an arcade game to a home game. And both Nintendo and Sega were incredibly smart about that. Sega were another icon of the 80s, and they set themselves up as a mature alternative to Nintendo. Games like Sonic the Hedgehog and Michael Jackson's Moonwalker for the Sega Genesis console were advertised with a cutting tagline. You can't do this on Nintendo Genesis. Sega does what Nintendo don't. Cruel. With both Sega and Nintendo, though, video games finally had something to rival the arcade experience. But consoles weren't the only way that games found their way into the home. On RN Summer... This is a short history of video games. I'm Dan Golding. In the 1980s, the computer appeared in people's lives. These machines were a long way from the fridge-sized computers that ran the first video games. Home computers, microcomputers as they were called, entered the home and brought a new kind of video game culture with them. Players became creators. Melanie Swalwell is a researcher of video game history at Flinders University. Games helped to domesticate computers, I think. Computers in the 1980s, having a computer was a luxury, you know, discretionary purchase. You either bought 
if you were an up-and-coming household, a microwave, a computer or a VCR, you know, um, that these were the, the must-have kind of consumer items. And, of course, computers were quite expensive, you know, even the cheaper ones. And then you needed a TV set to plug it into because that's how most of them were played. They didn't come with their own screens, or if they did, it was an extra expense on top of the computer. It's weird to think about it today, but when home computers first became available, people didn't really know what to do with them. Back in the early 80s, there was a real sense of not knowing what computers were good for. I mean, there were people who were hardcore and who were really interested in computers, but the large rest of the population, the large proportion of the population, kind of wondered what computers were useful for. And so, in a way, games helped to answer that question. It's funny in a way, but they sort of help to justify the expense of purchasing a computer. So um, they were often said that they'd be useful for, you know, doing kids' homework and they're educational and all these kinds of benefits. And the truth of the matter was, you know, that the largest use for computers was actually playing games. These microcomputers, machines with names like the Commodore 64, the ZX Spectrum, the BBC Micro, a computer produced by the BBC, the Amstrad, the Apple II, they started to appear in people's homes. With them came games. Helen Stuckey is also researching video game history at Flinders University. Most people's first encounter with computing was through games, either at home or at the school on microcomputers. Um, so they're, they're intimately entwined, the microcomputer and games culture. And this relationship happened not through simply the commercial purchasing of games, because obviously there was, at this time, no real established industry for off-the-shelf games. So people's relationship was through playing on their computer and trying to find things to do on the computer. And one of the things you could do on your new microcomputer was write and play games. Melanie Swalwell. It wasn't easy to just stick games onto removable media like it is today and like it became in the latter 80s. So people would actually share source code through magazines and it would be published in magazines. That was one way in which they shared games that they wrote. And most games that you played you are actually created by typing in the listings. So you got the listings from magazines or books, and that's how you actually got games onto your computer. So that was a much more intimate relationship with the stuff of games. Another way was through copying it onto tape, onto magnetic tape, you know, the kind of tape that we used to perhaps record songs onto off records back in the day. And there was no big division between what was a games designer and what was a games player because everybody was typing in their, their games to play uh, and maybe altering them and fixing them and, and debugging them because they're often really buggy code or, or not that greatly written code. So, so for early microcomputer users and gamers, they were creating their own games. The earliest games I remember playing were games that taught you how to use a computer. I remember a game on my school's black and white Apple Macintosh that was supposed to teach me how to use a mouse, for example. There was a basic sense of play there that stayed with me, even till today. At about the same time as these microcomputers turned up, an industry of game makers emerged here in Australia. Even in these early days, some Australian game makers created a complex game that would hold players' attention for months, even years, as players went on to do things the designers never expected. What happens at that time 
is that the Australian industry comes into being with Australia's first games development company, which is Beam Software. Beam Software, which was born out of the book publishing industry, was created by Fred Milgram and Naomi Beeson. Veronica Megler, a university student at the time, found herself at Beam Software in 1981. Computer games wasn't part of my interest set, but, well, I was looking at the jobs board. There was a very tiny advertisement with a phone number and saying they were looking for part-time programmers. So I contacted them and went in and met Fred Milgram for an interview. I think I was one of the first people that responded to that, and he hired me on the spot. It was very much like being at university. Most of us were university students, and that was where Fred was really way ahead of the industry in thinking that students with computer science background would be able to write games more effectively or more interesting games than the self-taught programmers that were the usual industry hires at the time. This university-style culture at Beam led to the first hit video game made in Australia. Their really huge hit was The Hobbit, which was written by Veronica Megler and Philip Mitchell. I sat down with Fred Milgram and he said he wanted the best adventure game ever. And that was pretty much the complete specifications that we had for the game that Phil and I wrote. The Hobbit was a text adventure game. I was a big fan of Tolkien, and I had read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings several times by that point in time. And I really enjoyed sitting down and turning that book into a game, figuring out the game puzzles, what you these days would call game design, although we didn't even have that term back then. And the amazing thing about The Hobbit and why it sustained people's interest so much is that Veronica Megler created this extraordinary system for the world where each character played the game, if this makes sense. So each character and animal, as she calls them, in the game had a set of limited behaviours. So each time you had a turn, all those characters also had a turn. So it was almost like a little living world. So the game was never quite the same the characters themselves would behave in a somewhat random fashion. The characters would interact with each other. And in fact, they regarded the player as just another character. They didn't differentiate between the the player and anybody else that they ran into while playing the game. So the characters themselves were playing the game on their own. And even if you sat in front of the keyboard, if you didn't type anything, the characters would all just go and have another move. As The Hobbit was mostly a text-based game, it's easy to give you an idea of what playing it was like. The first screen reads, You are in a comfortable, tunnel-like hall. To the east, there is a round green door. You see a wooden chest. Gandalf. Gandalf is carrying a curious map. Gandalf gives the curious map to you. And you might type, Say to Gandalf, open door, and he might open the door. Or you might tell Gandalf to burn the map and then see what happens. It was also possible for you to end up in the situation where 
you couldn't actually solve the puzzles in the game because some of the puzzles required you to get assistance from some of the other characters. You couldn't win the game because Gandalf had walked off a cliff or got killed by the Warg because whilst you're doing your turn, all their characters are doing other things. And if that character had run into the troll or the angry dwarf somewhere along the line, that character might be dead and so you might never actually be able to solve the game. And that was, I think that was pretty radical concept for the time. And it was a hugely successful game with these kind of wonderful puzzles that people had to solve. And, and so this is pre-internet, so people were solving the game by writing letters to magazines and, and forming clubs to solve it. Uh, it was very, like, take three months to solve, you know, The Hobbit. <laughs> so The Hobbit was huge. It was more than huge. It was enduring. Maybe it's because of the game's randomness or the way it plays out differently every time, but there are still players out there today trying to crack its secrets. I still get emails, and people write to tell me 35 years after they've played the game, the, the dramatic impact it had on their lives. It's really fascinating to see how it changed the course of their lives in some cases. I've had people tell me that it changed their reading level from Enid Blyton in Portuguese to reading The Lord of the Rings in English. I've had people tell me it got them interested in relationships, which is very scary when you think about the very basic kinds of interactions that the game had between the characters and, and the player. I've had one guy even tell me he spent decades reverse engineering the game because of a message the game would put out that there was a room that was too full to enter. And it turns out at the end he concluded it was a leftover artifact from testing that we'd never deleted. But he spent more time deconstructing the game than I spent writing it, which is truly amazing to me. The Hobbit has quite a legacy. Beyond the unexpected things that players did with the game, it laid a foundation for today's Australian game makers. And like Atari to Activision, you can trace little pieces of Beam and The Hobbit in most corners of today's Australian games. I'm told that it's possibly the best-selling text adventure game of all time, which is pretty amazing. I mean, it's very amazing that we could take a simple an instruction as write the best adventure game ever. And in essence, I think we actually delivered on that. But what happened to The Hobbit is the kind of thing that happened when games entered the home. You got to know a game, to really live with it, to pull it apart, put it back together again, and even to love it. Now that you didn't have to go to the arcade to get a good video game experience, the games themselves were changing. This was a sign that something else was coming, that video games were about to become a truly global phenomenon. I'm Dan Golding, and that's next week on A Short History of Video Games, here on RN Summer. RN Summer.